evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. Mahoning Drive-In Radio, your old friend Virgil back once again for another exciting episode of Mahoning Drive-In Radio. And as always, we have, well, we have two co-hosts tonight. We have Mark, the amazing general manager. Say hello, Mark. Hello. That is my uh, magician name when I work weekends. It is Mark, the amazing. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks for the free plug. There it is. And uh, we have James, production manager extraordinaire in the house. James, say hello. Hello, this is heavy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice little segue because we are going to be talking about a lot of Back to the Future tonight during this episode. And we have a very special guest with us who was really connected through our Back to the Future trilogy event of 2021, which if you guys were there... We had the most screen-accurate DeLorean in the house, and uh, it was mind-boggling on all fronts. But the coolest thing is we had a documentarian there shooting a film, and he happened to be getting footage, and we connected with him in a big, bad way. We could just tell. We could just, I guess, uh, smell our own, you know? But we'd like to welcome Tom Quigley, director of 88 Miles Per Hour Story of the DeLorean Time Machine, to the podcast. Say hello, my friend. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. This is long overdue. Mark will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) We have been trying to lock down since that event a time to get you on the podcast, but you've been busy not only with this documentary, but with a lot of projects. So we're really excited to talk to you. Yes, uh, I'm excited to talk about all of it and (laughs) to finally sit down and chat with you folks about it all. I have been very busy. It's it's really nice to get a break. (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about the initial connection how did you come to us and the mahoning what was this project at the time that uh, was it james was it you who reached out or or were you connected through mark at the through the email so i am a longtime fan of the mahoning i've been to a bunch of screenings over the years I'm, i'm a philadelphia boy and i had been working on this project throughout all of 2021 this documentary about the DeLorean time machine, a car that was used in all the Back to the Future movies is being entered into the Library of Congress on the National Historic Vehicle Register as a car that is culturally and historically significant to the public. So, you know, I had been working all year on this project chasing down interviews with a lot of people that had worked on the films and and people that had interface with a car throughout some time in its history or people that just knew about the history, sort of DeLorean or time machine historians. And towards the tail end of the project, we were kind of still looking for some footage to represent the fan base because Back to the Future has such an incredible, powerful fan base. Oh yeah. They love to come out for stuff. They love to show their fandom and they love to turn out for events like the Back to the Future weekend that Mahoning had. And so as a fan of the Mahoning, I had my ear to the ground for just what you folks were up to anyway. And as soon as I saw that you were having the Back to the Future weekend and the 
Replica was really a cherry on top. I really would have been there just for seeing people enjoying the film, to see people experiencing it in 35. Right. At a drive-in theater was just something that we wanted to capture to include in the documentary and to get a taste of you know what the Mahoning represents and also to have a replica on site really made it just the perfect storm so it, it really brought a lot to the the finished product ultimately yeah it was amazing how these how our our, our worlds kind of collided at the perfect time even though you've been a fan of of what we've done for a while um, now, you mentioned the, the historic registry. Like, is that a regular thing for cars to be historically protected? Is that? So it's relatively new. So the Haggerty Drivers Foundation is the nonprofit arm of Haggerty, which uh, is a car insurance company. I think they deal mostly with classic cars. But the Haggerty Drivers Foundation has sort of made their mission statement to kind of save driving culture. And so one of the things that they do is they work with the Library of Congress to build this register. And it's, uh, I'm not sure exactly for how long it's been in action, It's but it, it has only been, you know, maybe a decade or so. Amazing. So there are only, you know, like 50 or, or so cars on the register, maybe less than that. At any rate, it's it, it's sort of this new thing where they go through and they, a, they make this like write up on the entire history of the vehicle. They produce these documentaries. They do a lot of photography and laser scans of the vehicles so that they have sort of a perfect historical record of the thing and enter that information into the Library of Congress. And every year they add two or three vehicles to this register. And so last year they, they really sort of leaned into the movie cars sort of story, but yeah. they sort of picked two really fascinating stories on top of that. Like the, the DeLorean and the Countach both are, I think, really very pop culture cars. They're, they're very recognizable to a wide audience. And oh, yes. So they really kind of swung for the fences. And uh, and so we ended up making two feature films. Uh, they don't normally do feature length content. So this was kind of a, a very special circumstance. But the stories behind the vehicles really merited the time to really tell that story well and, and not cut too many corners. We want to talk to you about being involved in a driver's foundation and now having made this documentary and working on others. What is your background with the car culture and, and the drive-in specifically? Did you grow up going to a drive-in? Uh, so there was a drive-in. So I grew up largely in a suburb of Buffalo, New York called Clarence Center. Yeah. And uh, there was a drive-in nearby off Transit Road. I think it was just called the Transit Drive-In. It's still there. It's still there. And that's driving yeah. too. Excellent. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Honestly, I'm, I'm thrilled. So my, my folks still live up that way. And I should, the next time I'm up there, maybe I'll, I'll catch a show. So I, I do have some fond memories of going to that drive-in when I was younger. And I just really always, even if it wasn't something that I was like always attending, it's something that I always kind of romanticized. And I loved oh, yeah. the idea of, and I think it's one of those kind of big American cultural things that we need to hold on to. <laughs> so, I, you know, I really agree with kind of the Mahoning's whole mission statement and, and trying to save the drive-in and 35 millimeter culture and all that stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of. 
we do love how it crosses over with the car culture. It's one of those things that really birthed the drive-in, you know, gave uh, certainly the, the speed of it. So, yeah. So it's amazing that your your childhood drive-in is still open. Normally, when we ask people that, it's like, yeah, now it's a Target, now it's a CVS, now it's a, a mall, whatever the case is. You could actually go back to your drive-in. Do you remember some of the movies that you saw? To be honest, I'm not quite sure. I, I don't have so many super distinctive memories so much as kind of a blur of all of the nice experiences rolled together. We just had Al Manelli, the director of the At the Drive-In documentary. Right. And it was the same exact thing. It's more this, this feeling, these moments, but remembering the movie, just it wasn't there. It's amazing how the drive-in can kind of burrow into your uh, your head as a kid, but you won't remember what was up on screen. It was more about the experience that you had there. Exactly. It's, it's the experience that makes it interesting. And I think the same could probably be said of, you know, a lot of maybe shows that people have gone to, like seeing a musical artist. It's the same kind of thing. A lot of times you remember the moments of being there with other people and oh, less, you know, what was happening on stage. Yeah. Now, obviously, the, the three of us are huge Back to the Future fans, uh, runs insanely deep. Is that the case for you with this movie specifically, Back to the Future? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I'm, I'm a big fan. And certainly after having done this whole documentary, like I'm, I'm in deeper than I ever thought I was going to be. <laughs> I think it's a make it or break it. It's you're either more of a fan or you never want to hear those four letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Uh, and I think I've met some people on both ends of that spectrum. <laughs> and I got to say, it, it's something that I I was very fond of, but I was a bit unaware of the breadth of the fan base and exactly how passionate yeah. some of those people are. So it was really, it was like a joyous exploration for me to discover like how deep this rabbit hole went and really to have gotten you know not to the bottom of it I, I wouldn't say that i'm anywhere near as well educated as a lot of the people that i worked with throughout this documentary like i i spoke with and worked with a lot of people that really well and truly know their stuff and i simply was able to kind of pull the information that was relevant from each of them and try to assemble the most cohesive version of the story that I could. But, you know, we did maybe 18 <laughs> interviews throughout the whole thing. And, and most of them were at least an hour and a half long. Some went more than three hours. And so there's there's so much content there and so many things that we didn't get to talk about. It's, it's kind of insane. But so I am a big Back to the Future fan, but I have to say that cautiously because i know that would be an insult to some people so <laughs> two of those interviews that you did are with uh oliver and terry holler who i am friends with as well and uh i actually went to one of their events they had a uh back to 1885 yes. event like right for part three and they did so many cool things for the fans where they put their DeLorean on the railroad tracks, which was like a, a huge bucket list to be able to do that. Like a bucket list that you never thought you would ever actually achieve, getting to ride in a DeLorean on the, the train tracks. Actually, even like with the actual train from part three. And like, yeah. I was so happy that you included them in this <laughs> because they really deserve it. Like they, they sincerely, 
have done so much for the fans to make like their dreams come true. And they're aware of us too. And they, they, they love this kind of shows that we put on. So it's a really cool thing to get their admiration. And I love to, you know, just that you gave it right back to them. It's jam packed. Yeah. They are honestly some of my favorite people that I've ever met. They are so sweet and good. And uh, I, I'm so happy to have been able to give them that platform in the documentary because I think you're right. They absolutely deserve it. And uh, they spoke very fondly about that event you were talking about, the back to 1885, 1886. Dean Cundy was there. Is that right? What? Yeah, well, he didn't. They had they had it back to back years. No pun intended. Uh, and um, he was at the first one. He didn't go to ours, but he gave us all these aut- free autograph photos for not being wow. there. Oh, but they great. had like so many other people there. Other cast members were there, and there were people from all over the world that came. Like, like there were all these different like accents, and all over like <laughs> even the United States. I met so many cool people there that just wanted to do this event. They're you know giant Back to the Future fans. So, like you said, like the the people that you meet in this fandom are like really amazing. Yeah, it it continues to impress me, and I've spent all year doing nothing but thinking about them <laughs> so it's really incredible um, what was the um the the production period you had for this documentary so i <laughs> this is this is great so as i said they don't normally work in feature films they usually put stuff out that's more in the realm of like 20 minutes or so i found out that they were going to do the delorean in maybe december of 2020 possibly January of 2021. And so immediately we kind of hit the ground running and I guess they had done some groundwork ahead of time and um, they had gotten in touch with Bob Gale, who is the co-writer, co-producer, like essentially the gatekeeper of all things Back to the Future, the Godfather. And He's, he's a tremendous, lovely, lovely man. And he kind of plugged us into everyone we could have ever dreamed of. So we kind of started the conversation early on saying, well, let's just try to drum up a, like a dream list of all the people we could interview. And came up with this great long dream list and kind of sent most of it to Bob, who said, like, I, I love it. I, I'm thrilled that the car is going to be put on the register and whatever you need, I'd love to help you out. And so we gave him this list of people and he basically said, oh, all right, well, here you go. Here's the key. And he just emailed, he, he emailed everybody and CC'd us all. And he just said, hey, this is what's up, help him out. Yeah, like I said, the, the, the doc is jam packed. You have some monster names in this, in this documentary and it's packed with information. Yeah. So that makes total sense, that that gatekeeper. <laughs> well, it was it was just so much better than we could have ever dreamed of. You know, we, we were expecting that maybe, oh, well, he'll hook us up with a, a one or two really important people that we wouldn't be able to get to otherwise, but he'll be too busy to go through the motions to plug us in to everybody. But he immediately just connected us to everyone. And so we kind of were overwhelmed at first. And like, 
we overdid it a little bit and kind of scheduled so many interviews because we said, well, like we, we should do it. We're, we're connected to this person. There's no reason we shouldn't do this while we have the opportunity. And so we ended up kind of overreaching a little bit, but we can get into that later. But it, it really was incredible that we got all the really key important interviews that we could have gotten for the most part. And that's all really thanks to Bob Gale. It's crazy. Talk about the connection, you know? So as far as the, the the registry, maybe you can explain it to me a little more. Is it actually protecting the physical car or it's more an informational piece to keep the history a bit alive? So it's an informational piece. It's, uh, again, they, they do very comprehensive photography, like really great studio photography that they shoot in Allentown. They have a facility over there where they, they have this kind of great little test track and that belongs to uh, the NB Center and they have this great little photo studio and they do very comprehensive photography and they again they do these laser scans so they have kind of a an outrageously detailed record of exactly the condition the car is in at the time they put it on the register and they work very diligently to put together a, like a very comprehensive historical write-up of the whole thing that really exceeds kind of the scope of the documentary. Like the documentary is certainly a, an excellent historical resource, but I think there's, you know, like anything media related, you chop it up to make it compelling and not that you're changing facts or anything like that, but, you know, you are sometimes summing things up that maybe could be expounded upon if you were thinking like, well, we don't have time to really get into this aspect of it, but yeah. it's a super comprehensive informational record, but the cars themselves remain with their owners or in whatever museums they're in. You know, some are owned by private collectors, some stay in museums. In the case of the DeLorean, the car lives in the Peterson Museum in LA. It's incredible. Which is a great museum, but they were able to get it to the National Mall for display, and then also to this car show in Florida, the Amelia Island Concours. They brought it there as they announced that it was going onto the register back in May of 2021. So you're telling me the A car was in Allentown at one point? Uh, it was. Yeah, when you said that, I'm like, are you telling me the Cannonball Lamborghini was within an hour of where I was on a given day? This is. This is crazy. I have to tell you that it was. Oh, God. One day. Wow. One day I will touch that view. So Haggerty reaches out to you. You get hired to do the documentary. And that's what that's what kind of sends this thing in motion. More or less. So I, I'm technically hired by Honeyman Films, which is uh, owned by Connor Kelly, who is uh, an extremely talented gentleman who edits all of these documentaries, produces them. And he's been working with the Haggerty Drivers Foundation for, you know, probably a decade, maybe more. So he's been working with them to kind of build up this content, which, you know, a decade ago was much more smaller in form factor that it really didn't have the production value they have now. But he's been kind of building it up. And so they've been working with him and he kind of hires the rest of us to do whatever lifting needs to be done. So as the scope of these projects has gotten bigger, it's, you know, it's become unreasonable for him to carry the weight of all of these big documentary projects <laughs> in a year. So he turns to me, who I, I've been shooting for him uh, for a long time. I do like a lot of camera work. So I've shot a bunch of cars 
previously. And then uh, in the last couple of years, I've been starting to direct more of these documentaries. Incredible. So, uh, yeah, so I did, the, the first project that I directed for them was about the Model T, specifically the 15 millionth Model T that they made. But it kind of covered the scope of the Model T and Henry Ford and, and kind of that whole story. Man, talk about coming out swinging. You don't get a more important car than that. <laughs> yeah, he, he gave me a big one right out the gate. Wow. Uh, and then the following year, uh, I did one about a, a Duesenberg, 1921 Duesenberg, which was um, a very classy, high-performance vehicle of the day. But that year, they really hit it off with Connor's documentary, which was about a Dodge Challenger called the Black Ghost that has just a really incredible kind of human backstory behind it. And I'll, I can give a bigger pitch for that later, but that's an excellent doc you should check out uh, in addition to the DeLorean and the Countach docs. We love it. Well, getting back to the DeLorean. So obviously you, you get all these amazing interviews and you start jumping into it. At one point, I think you and James kind of crossed paths. Didn't they bring the A-car to DC? You were there, James, right? Yeah, I ducked out of work early and uh, I ran down there because I, I mean, I'd been to LA, but I didn't think that this car would ever be this close, like on the East Coast, you know? So I had to fly down there to try to see it. And um, yeah, no, it was, it was a beautiful display. It was all the information like below the car um, and on all four sides. It was like behind this, I'm assuming bulletproof glass. I don't blame it. You know? <laughs> and I think it was open all night. Am I? Is there ever a point when they shut oh, it down? I don't think no, so. No, right? it, you can view it around the clock. So wow. I, I guess I should give a little context for this. As as part of the cars going on the register, Haggerty will transport them to Washington D.C. to display them on the National Mall for uh, like a week at a time, and it's outdoors in this uh, glass case. And there's, you know, there's an armed security guard uh, there and oh, obviously yeah, it's the National Mall, so it's it's pretty safe. But yeah, you can go and see any of these cars if you, you know, are, are keeping track of when they're going to be on display. So the DeLorean, Time Machine, the Cannonball Run, Countach. Uh -huh. And actually the uh, this year, because of COVID complications, they displayed the Duesenberg and the Black Ghost as well, which were the cars from the year previous. So it Come was like a, a month of cars on display. So cars and in the capital. Keep, keep your finger on the pulse so you have the opportunity. <laughs> and that display <laughs> case is, is amazing. It looks gorgeous at night. It, it almost looks like it, like an alien race beamed down this cube <laughs> with this beautiful vehicle in it for, for you to study. <laughs> and then it's gonna get beamed back up, you know? Oh, that's amazing. Well, James, what was your, uh, what, obviously we know your fandom with Back to the Future runs insanely deep, your love for uh, this film. How do you feel about the DeLorean and what it represents and the fact that it's in the National Registry? That's just too cool to me. It's such an amazing initiative that you guys have going. Oh, it's, it's I mean, it's definitely the best movie car. I mean, no offense, Cannonball Run, but uh <laughs> I mean, you know, it's everybody. How many tailpipes and... does your car have? <laughs> <laughs> I believe mine has somewhere between eight and twelve. It, How many tailpipes so is an exhaust for uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what it is? It's those. It's those, those exhaust 
um, out of the back. It's the it's like the uh, reactor exhaust. Right. That's what really like makes that car, in my opinion, stand out the most. It just it's like it's like it's got jet engines on the back, even though it's not what they're for. Um, no, it's just gorgeous. And like the, uh, the car that we had out, Peter's car, Peter Ricca's car for, um, Troy City Time Machine. He, he did such a spectacular job recreating it. Like I've seen a ton of DeLoreans and there's usually something about them that's off and it doesn't matter because they're all gorgeous, but like he really went above and beyond in terms of the detail. And he, they even used his in that discovery show and it was up on stage with uh, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. So it was so cool to get that to come out. I was just having a Back to the Future filled like two weeks. I, w- I was just out in L.A. I went to all the filming locations. I came back. I know that we're doing our show. And then I find out that the car's at the National Mall. And I'm like, what the hell? So like within two weeks, <laughs> all the locations, the, the A car and then a replica car that we got to all sit in and, and drive around in. And it was just like amazing. And then Tom shows up and he's shooting a film about the whole thing. Yeah, and then they... <laughs> that's the way the Mahoney works. It really, it's it's this kind of magic. Small world. Yeah, it, it is. It's a mixing pot. And if, and if I didn't have Peter's car there, I was going to reach out to Oliver and Terry to see if they could come up. But they live, I think, North or South Carolina. Yeah, it would have been a trip. So that would have been kind of a drive. But I mean, I know they were like open to it. I did bring it up a long time ago. Yeah, that would have been my backup choice. So it would have been an even smaller world. Again, had I known they were in DC the week before, like <laughs> <laughs> the DeLorean is such. It's one of those cars that's just it's breathtaking. It looks futuristic. It's it was so kind of cutting edge, uh, and that's that's the thing I loved about the documentary is that it's so informative and kind of gives you the whole backstory of you know not just its involvement with Back to the Future, but what what's so crazy about this car, you know, and how it came to be. And that's the amazing, uh, the amazing takeaway for me. What I found amazing about the car down there, the A car, is that is the suspension like locked in? Not to my knowledge. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the condition is. I was down there talking to, um, I think, somebody that works at the Haggerty, and they were saying that I think at one point it was like held up in the air, so they like they locked the suspension so the wheels wouldn't hang, or something like that. That could be, and then be... also there's no gas in it, right? There's, so it had it had to be pushed, right? Yeah, it, 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 it because it's on display in museums. They don't keep any gas in it. Uh, it's not like really actually ready to run. Like hypothetically, you could get it running without much effort, but yeah, it it needs to be pushed because it's always on display on the museums. So they don't want like a fire hazard, right? But as far as the suspension is concerned, I'm not sure. I know that it previously had been on display a little bit differently where it was kind of behind glass and it was on an angle. So it's possible they may have done something with it then, but that's not really a a detail that I'm... You don't handle the suspension of the (laughs) A-car? No, uh, but I I did get real close to a lot of the other details. And I got to tell you, it's, um, it's really very cool to to get that close to yeah. something like that. That's what was so amazing about the event. And I think what blew people's minds is like, wait, we can get in it. Oh my God. And you'd see people start trembling. Like the fandom in them is going insane, but it is, yeah. it's like James said, it's, it's probably up there as many people's coolest movie car. And it, it was a dream come true. And even when we had one there that had no bells and whistles, we had Matt Reynolds, a buddy of ours, 
uh, show up one year. It was caught in the documentary. Show up, and uh, it's just such an amazing car for to look at, to take pictures with, and obviously the connection to the film. It's it's kind of never ending. Yeah, absolutely. And it it really was. I mean, it shows in the footage that we shot at the Mahoning in the documentary. You can see a lot of the good footage that we have of fans we shot was people with uh, the Troy City time machine getting their pictures taken, having their kids sit in the driver's seat and and just talking with a number of those people afterward. It was really something to see, especially that intergenerational aspect of it that we allude to at the end of the documentary really is very true and was very much proven at the Mahoning, which is this idea that the parents who loved that movie when they were kids are showing it to their kids now and the new kids are loving it and the whole premise of the movie dealing with imagining your parents as kids and everything like it's it's yeah. crazy how well that it all ties together and it's also evocative of kind of the themes of the movie it's it's such a neat little package it's in, insanely satisfying too cool. I was just curious, where do you stand in your opinion on like car restoration in general? Like in terms of how uh, Bill Walser and everything restored the car. How much do you? How much of a car do you think, if it's in terrible condition, should be left the way it was, or do you think it? What they did is like kind of what you should do and re refix it up the best you can. That's a, a really interesting question. And so I, I would point to Tom Silkmitter and Rob Klein in the documentary really well represent kind of the, the conundrum of it, which is I don't think that there is really a simple answer to that question because I think there is something to appreciate in the history of an artifact throughout its lifetime. You know, if it goes through a period of ill care or some damage comes to it while it's in somebody's care, like that is part of its history. And I do think that's interesting and there's something interesting about preserving it. But at the same time, I totally understand that the A-car was in terrible shape and that it wasn't good to display and that that is a different kind of history like if it stayed that way as a historical artifact it would have represented something else it would have represented this is what happens if you don't take care of something it's like a cautionary tale right uh but if you are able to restore it with a lot of care if you're able to put a lot of effort into saying well let's get this to be screen accurate let's make sure this is exactly the right part that we're replacing this with yeah. So that you, as they say in the documentary, like kind of recapture the magic. I do think that that's like very valuable in a different kind of way. Like that's what people want to see in the museum. They don't want to go see the DeLorean A car and then be bummed out because it's a cautionary tale about, well, this is what happens if you just let it sit outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's an important lesson to learn, but I don't know that that's the one you want to put on display in the Peterson. So like, I, I think they made the right choice in restoring it. But I, I understand that exactly how you restore something and the line between conservation and restoration is like, it's all very interesting to me. And again, I don't think there are right answers, but there are some people with very strong opinions about those kinds of things. <laughs> so I know it gets a little dicey. It's a great argument, you know, but it, I, I think it really does show and prove the love of, of this car specifically, you know, to have uh, that much love and time put into it to make sure you know, like you said, when people see it, they they are taking in what they remember and they're in awe, not awe, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then it could be contentious that people are going to, you know, maybe get in arguments over how it was restored means that people care a lot about it. Yeah. And so that is really, I think, the bigger takeaway, which is this is important and it's, you know, people care very much about it. So uh, maybe it's important that we discuss how this is handled. And all cars you could look at as as piece of art. But when you talk about a movie car, something that is uh, captured in time and embedded forever on celluloid, it's it becomes uh, it, it, people become insanely passionate about it. Now, let's talk about movie cars, you know, being involved in the National Registry and, and what you do. What other cars of note are included in the registry? So one of the big ones that they have is the Bullet Mustang. Oh, my God. He's never heard of it. I love it. That's, you know, when you think of, well, you you know it, when you think about certain movie cars, there's some that are right at the top of the list. That's might be my number one, you know? Well, yeah. So they, interestingly, I'm not really the guy to talk about this because I wasn't so much on this documentary, but they kind of were the ones to find it. It was in the hands of like a family in, uh, I forget, Virginia, maybe. And it was like bought by a father and he, I don't know, kept it. And then he and his son were like keeping it in the barn. And then somehow they, they found it. And so a few years ago, it was kind of a big story that it had resurfaced and cool. they had kind of been the ones to break the story. Seems like all lost movie cars are in a barn somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> it seems to be the way. So, uh, <laughs> listeners with barns, uh, check them out. Just in case. There might be a famous movie car. I mean, I think about certain biggies, you know, the, the Ghostbusters car, the Batman, Batmobile, things like yeah. that. Any others uh, that, that, that pop? So uh, another really big one, and and I am working on, they don't have a documentary for this yet, but I am working on getting them to, to follow through <laughs> on it. But they have the, the Ferris Bueller Ferrari. Oh, yes. Which is not actually a Ferrari, but is a Modena Spider dressed up to look like a Ferrari. Wow. There's, there's a whole fascinating story behind it, and I don't want to blow it before we can make the documentary. Yeah, it, so it's a perfect documentary. <laughs> And leave it at that. So that's on the register. Otherwise, as far as movie cars go, they have... That might be it. Wow. I just want to know if it's uh, still wrecked from going out the window, you know? <laughs> so they they made... Uh, I believe that was a, like a fiberglass replica that they shot out the window. I don't think it was... Yeah, there there, there were a couple of them that they used. And who's to say what gets added to the registry each year? It's it's how many cars per year are inducted? It's usually two to three. It, it has not been entirely consistent, uh, but last year it was two. And I believe this year there will be three. And I can't tell you what they are. And you have the also, dirt. It, it also <laughs> might change. It might change. I'm not certain that it's going to be three, but I believe they're planning for three. Will it, will it be worth the trip to D.C.? <laughs> Uh, I, I think that will that will depend a little bit on you know you're what, what you're interested in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, what's What's funny is that if you look through the the list of all the vehicles that have been inducted, it's not all like sexy cars. I mean, a minivan is in there, and I think we talked about that when you were at the drive-in. 
like the it's old worth preserving what we referred yeah. to back then as the dust buster <laughs> you know one of those <laughs> original minivans is in there so it's 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 historically significant moments in you know american or international automotive history not just the cars you had posters of as a kid Precisely. And the minivan is another one like the Ferris Bueller car that I am trying to get them to follow through on a documentary for. It's the first minivan that was ever made. The 1984 Plymouth Voyager. Was that the wood paneled minivan? With the VIN number, VIN number one. Yes, it's got, it's brown with wood paneling on the side. We got to, we got to shoot it in the studio. So we have all the B-roll of it. We don't have the rest of the content to put the documentary together, but so, you know, I got to sit in those seats and, and look at the pattern of the fabric and really <laughs> get transported back in time oh. uh, to the baby blue Plymouth Voyager. That your, your hand was reaching for a juice box that never manifested itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I would love for them to follow through on that story because it is, you're right, they're not all sexy cars. Some of them are, they have different kinds of stories. And the minivan, I think, is a really interesting story because it really transformed a lot of automotive culture. It was the first vehicle of its type to service the growing family population in the country. And it, it's just a really neat story. And so to go back to kind of one of the first questions you asked me, which I don't think I've really answered, which is I'm, I'm not really that much of a car guy. I've never been super into cars and so right, i think that that has ultimately been my strength as a director for the haggerty drivers foundation is you know the vehicles that they're entering are important for reasons beyond their automotive capabilities you know they're not putting a car on because it was the fastest car that you could drive they're putting a car on because it meant something bigger than that and so me as as somebody who is not traditionally uh, very much a car guy. I love these stories that are really interesting because they are bigger than just, well, they put a new engine in it that was bigger and faster than the last engine they had made. Like, that's cool. But like, <laughs> yeah. why? <laughs> what does it mean to me? Right. Tom Quigley in 2022, a lot of these cars really do have very interesting stories and, and they had bigger ripples outside of just what they could do. So I, I think it's really neat. I think it's a very engaging kind of mission and to tell these stories and to learn these stories for myself has been really rewarding. Yeah, you do an incredible job with that. Is there, I know that the 88 miles per hour is available online. Are all these documentaries available online? Yes, they are all available for free on the YouTube. And that's kind oh, of the whole oh. idea is, you know, it's supposed to be for public consumption. We're telling these stories so that they can be available in the Library of Congress. And so, yeah, it's it's all for free on YouTube. Such a beautiful thing. Yeah. You do such a great job with it. I want to go back a little bit, just kind of uh, to, to know a little bit more about you. How did, how did you get involved in filmmaking? I knew that I wanted to make movies when I was young. And so I, having grown up near Buffalo, when I was looking at schools, I just wanted to go to a college that was going to give me kind of hands-on experience. So I ended up going to Drexel University, which awesome. had a, a very hands-on kind of technical program. And it worked out very well. And I was able to kind of just start freelancing right away. So I've done a number of different kinds of jobs in the industry. I've done, you know, a lot of lighting and shooting and yeah. assistant directing and producing and this and that and the other. And it's it's been a very 
interesting long and winding road but ultimately i'm kind of doing the stuff i want to be doing which is you know directing and shooting has has really become very dear to me and so having being able to look at a lot of these documentaries and see the stuff that i shot and feel like good about what that was able to bring to a story is very rewarding so oh god you're doing a service. I mean, that's the beautiful <laughs> thing too, is not only are you doing what you love in a beautiful way, but you're you're preserving these stories. Like you said, this is going to be around forever. It's going to be made sure that it's around forever. <laughs> and that's your work. That's 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 really a, a beautiful thing. It's pretty cool. I've, I feel very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in and, and to be able to tell these stories. Awesome. Well, I know we wanted to talk about Mark's favorite movie car. Mark, it's no secret, I think, to, to anybody, anybody who's a listener or fan. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the radio at the drive-in or on the podcast that the Cannonball Run is my favorite movie. <laughs> you don't say. No, I don't know if anybody's heard of it. I, I, I don't know, you know, if anybody's paid attention to this, this documentary since it's come out because it's such an obscure film. But yeah, I saw it when I was seven on the big screen. I saw it multiple times at multiple theaters in my small town back when you could do that. Saw it at the drive-in, and uh, the sound of that engine opening up as the sun rises at the beginning of that movie, it, it changed me forever. <laughs> Made me a man. It laid dormant <laughs> for a while, and then it, it it's quite honestly one of the main reasons I've been involved with the Mahoney. It made me want to get in the car and go places. And the documentary that was released, it was about, from, we're recording this uh, on the 19th of January. I think it was released within the last week, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was. I believe it was released on the 12th. On the 12th. And I, as quickly as possible, see, this is the great thing. You say it's on YouTube and, and, and you conjure images of, well, you can watch it on a computer or your phone. Most TVs, you can watch it on your TV. And so I, we have a huge TV here. It's like 70 something inches. So I watched that on the big TV and I was grinning like an idiot the entire time. <laughs> it, was, it was a thing of beauty. It had the pulse racing like it always did. It was funny. And I know you didn't direct this one, but I said as soon as it was over, if this was the only documentary we ever had about the Cannonball Run period, I would be okay with that. It's so comprehensive. And this makes me want to watch the other documentaries as well, because it just, it just, it answered every question I had. Like some of the questions I had for this podcast when we ultimately did it were, were answered in the documentary. And, and, and just gorgeous, recreating moments from the film in a way, uh, talking to the various people who've owned the car and all the things the car has been through, but it's also a great history of the Cannonball Run as an actual race and of the movie and everything else. So I could just shower compliments upon you endlessly. Now you say it's been relatively popular since released. Oh yes, it's already, it's surpassed a million and a quarter views in a week. <laughs> it's love, um, So it's, it's really taken off. People love it. People love the Countach and it's, it's funny. It's the kind of thing that I, you know, that's such a through line in the in that documentary about how it was like everybody's fantasy car and it kind of created fantasy cars for a lot of kids during those years. And I recalled specifically having when I was a little kid, and this is me not really being like so much of a car guy, but like I remember having a little Hot Wheels white Lamborghini Countach. <laughs> And it, it was just so clearly to me as a child, as like a five-year-old, I was like, well, that's the coolest one. Like, obviously it's this one, the one that looks like a spaceship, like the one that's, 
you know, that crazy wedge design. And the doors open up, the doors flip up. That was, that blew my yeah. mind as a kid. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. Well, so it was, it was something that I connected with that, even as somebody that didn't grow up to continue to be like super fascinated by cars. It's like, I, I'm not somebody that's sitting here thinking like, oh, well, I want to have a Countach one day because like, that's not practical for me. I recognize that. And, and by all accounts, it's really just kind of not practical, period. <laughs> the owner <laughs> well, right. talking about like everything that's wrong with trying to just just operate the vehicle. <laughs> that yeah. really, it, it burst in a bubble in the best way. It's like, well, maybe I don't need to own it now because <laughs> it yeah, drives it's great when you get up to like 160, but the whole looking through any window is a bit of an issue. Yeah, it, it really, it should be seen as a bit of a novelty and an extremely expensive novelty. But yeah, like it was never designed to be something practical. And that's, you know, the DeLorean story is kind of similar in some ways. It was, it was like one part trying to be practical and one part not really trying to be practical. But yeah, the, the, the Countach is just like a power move. It's a flex of a car and it's really good at being that flex. But yeah, would you use it for anything except flexing on the highway? Like, no. <laughs> Well, we're, we're excited to, uh, to be able to share this with the audience. And, you know, like I said, you guys can go out there and watch these documentaries, take them in. And the fact that they're being preserved is a, it's, it's a very, very cool thing. So what's next on the docket for you, my friend? Well, so this year, uh, as we discussed, they're going to put some more cards on the register. So I will be working on all of those documentaries in various capacities. I'll be directing another one. And again, I, I can't say which one it is, but it is a pretty cool car. And I think some, some folks are going to be pretty excited about it. So stay tuned. It's the dog car from Dumb and Dumber, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I'll cut that out. Sorry. I didn't mean to blow it. Put, put it up front. Put it up front. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, what, what's exciting is to imagine the possibilities, you know, once you so what what I love about having done the DeLorean documentary is maybe a year, maybe two prior, somebody from the Haggerty Drivers Foundation asked me while we were on a shoot, what cars would you want to see on the register? You know, what, what do you think is like the coolest car that you would want to see? And my knee-jerk reaction was the DeLorean. I thought, like, well, I, that's the most recognizable car I could think of yeah. that anybody anywhere would see it and go, like, well, okay, I, I know what I'm looking at here. That's the DeLorean. And so it felt incredibly fortuitous that it was the car that they ended up putting on the register and then I got to be the guy. But now that that's out of the way my head turns to all the other possibilities and you know the the cars that will come the following year that i don't know what else they're they're considering you already named a few of the big ones earlier that aren't on the register yet but i'm sure deserve to be there someday so sky's the limit and it's really <laughs> exciting to consider what could be coming down the pipeline it's really really cool so I got to bring it up. I don't know if you can talk about it, but what's this about word on the street that you're working on the new Mystery Science Theater? Oh, uh, well, can you I, talk I, about it? Because we're can't, I can't really talk about it. <laughs> oh, I, dude. I, I can. I can say that I did do some work on some new Mystery Science Theater. Very. And so that's cool. something that we all can look forward to in our lives. <laughs> It all mixes in. One of the uh, one of the writers for the Netflix show comes to the theater. Uh, I know yeah. it's no longer around anymore, but well, tell him to come back. 
yeah. <laughs> I may just have his information. <laughs> okay. <laughs> James, do you have uh, any more questions for our, our friend? What advice would you have for aspiring filmmakers or documentarians? Because I imagine... I'm not I'm not a documentarian, but I imagine that like the hard work is just actually going out and doing the project and persevering more so than like the schooling. Yes. So I would say, and this is and this is me also speaking as an adjunct professor at Drexel University. <laughs> You're absolutely right. The the doing it is the most important part. And I think that going to school for film production has its values but a lot of those values are in the connections that you make so if you think you can just jump right into it like the you learn most by doing and so for anybody that wants to try to get into this sort of thing i would say you just have to do it and find any way to do it even if it's with your friends and with your limited resources like your your phones have great cameras now and if you care to learn about the craft like youtube can teach you most of the stuff that you could learn at school school can put gear in your hands maybe so that's like a plus but yeah. like really the important thing is you just have to do it get in the driver's seat yeah keep keep trying stuff and show it to people and try to get people excited and don't give up because it can suck eggs sometimes <laughs> keep pushing keep pushing right Right. Well, like I said, the, the documentary is amazing. Did you have any like mind blowing total fanboy moments while making this thing? <laughs> the whole thing was really a trip because <laughs> you have to remember, I only found out that I was doing this project about three or four months before we started. And, and Bob Gale was one of our very first interviews. So, wow. you know, we, we interviewed him in April. So I had at most four months of, of lead time before I knew I was going to be sitting down with Bob Gale. Ward Gale. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Ward Gale. And and it was a dream. And and sitting down with Leah Thompson was was a surreal moment. And I just couldn't. <laughs> it, I mean, it was incredible. She, she makes you weak in the knees still. Yeah, I'm telling you. And, and honestly, it, it was such a treat. Michael Chaffee, who's in the documentary, he's all over it. He's, he's like a poet. He was such a treat to sit down and talk with. He just was so eloquent in the way that he describes things. He was so intelligent in the way that he would talk about car design or the way that they assembled something. And he was so humble. I, like I could sit down and listen to his whole three plus hour long interview all day long. And that's... <laughs> Really, the crazy thing about this project is there's so much stuff that isn't in there. <laughs> there were so many interviews. Hours of, yeah. Yeah, and, and the film is like an hour and 40 minutes, which is long. Like, that's longer than I thought it was going to be. So there's a lot in there, and there's so much more that isn't. And so there's other stories that maybe aren't known. There's a lot of just retellings of things that maybe super fans are familiar with, but you know, all the stuff that the documentary brings to the table, there's scores more of that just kind of sitting on the cutting room floor. So maybe, hopefully, someday we'll, we'll find some way to put some more of that content out in another form of some kind. But yeah, it's wild. Documentary making is wild. 
Well, keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. I, I got to ask the guys, you know, obviously DeLorean's number one for James. We know what Mark's number one is. What's another go-to? What do you think, like, if if you got asked that question, hey, what, what car do you think should be in the National Registry? Where does your head go besides your obvious? Oh, obviously, Ecto-1 is next. But, I mean, you know, the, the Batmobiles, I mean, those are your main three, right? The Batmobile, the DeLorean, and the Ecto-1. Those are the... Those are like the convention cars, if you were to say, you know. Right. Are any of the uh, Batmobiles the National Registry, like the, the Adam West one, none of them? No Batmobiles yet. And wow. is, it, is it more about a, a car that is uh, important and iconic? Because we're talking Batmobile, that's a custom car. And well, I suppose the DeLorean is too, but that's based on, it, it's a souped up. Actually. I'm wondering if the, if the registry would be taking in things like a Batmobile as opposed to a a charger or a challenger that was a car people could buy i think that a batmobile would definitely be a possibility but i think the the difficult decision that they would need to make is which batmobile oh, would yeah. you pick because <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. you know ultimately you know i could tell you the documentary would have to talk about all of them just because i know that that's where <laughs> our heads are at yeah. is like well if we're going to talk about this batmobile we got to talk about the history of all the Batmobiles. It's going to be a two-hour documentary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, so so that's a, a beast. But yeah, I think that would certainly be one that they're considering. But one of the challenges they would have to, you know, figure out is which one do you pick? Because that's a that's a much harder question. You know, if you're going to talk about a DeLorean, you could say, well, it's pretty easy to pick which DeLorean you would pick to represent DeLoreans. It's the one that everybody recognizes. So that was easy, but a Batmobile's challenging. Ecto-1, I think, is one that, you know, certainly they should be considering, and I don't know when that'll make it, but I'm sure that sooner or later, that's, you know, one that people recognize and was influential, so I know that's got to be in consideration. And it won't be in a barn. I mean, it was in the movie, but it's, I know it's on the lot, um, the Sony lot, so easy to find. Right. Well, it's interesting, you know, these cars do come from all different places. You know, the the uh, Bullet Mustang was kind of a barn find, but a lot of these cars belong to private collectors or are in museums. Now, there's another one they have on the register that's a 66, like Volkswagen van that was used during the civil rights movement to bus people to the polls that was educating them about the, like, literacy tests that they would have to take at the polls and it's in, in like an incredible american story and that was sitting in a backyard that literally needed to be excavated and that's another one that we kind of have some footage of and we don't have a full documentary of yet but it was incredible we we have kind of this whole backstory and then we have all this incredible footage of pulling this thing unearthing it from a backyard in south carolina and so they like put wheels on it so that it can roll but it's not in any kind of driving shape so it really it runs the gamut uh the cars are in all kinds of condition and in all kinds of places and in all kinds of conditions of care yeah do you think the the feature length duration of the last two docs will push the um, future documentaries to be more that length or will they will they vary in length depending upon the richness of the subject matter? I, I think that they are destined to always be a little bit flexible as per the subject matter because some stories just aren't, you know, they don't demand quite as much right. time. But I also have to tell you that like I feel 
pretty personally responsible for pushing the length <laughs> as long as it's gotten. <laughs> because they really, they were all very brief. They were like 10 to 15 minutes before I got involved. And then the Model T came into my lap and I said, well, this is a big story. So this should be pretty long, right? And so I pushed it further than they've pushed it. And, and then this year I was like, oh, well, it's the DeLorean. Look at all these interviews. We got to make this definitely going to be a feature. And it's funny because they kind of were in denial all year. <laughs> I kept saying, this, I'm, it's definitely going to be a feature. And they would go, no, it's not. You're going to cut it down. Don't you worry. And I'd say, well, just you. Just you wait. <laughs> and then I <laughs> sent them kind of the first, not exactly a rough cut. It's called a radio edit where we just kind of cut the the sound bites down and don't really worry about covering it in b-roll but just get like the story beats roughly in place and it was i don't know almost two hours long <laughs> it was like an hour and 45 <laughs> an hour and 48 and i sent it to them and they were like you know there's really not a whole lot we can cut <laughs> <laughs> so That's here it is like an hour yeah. and 40 minutes long just keep pushing just yeah keep well, so I, I expect they all probably will be, you know, maybe in the 30 minute range, at least. I don't think we're going to be in for features this this year, but, you know, we'll we'll see. One of the struggles of making documentary is you you start digging to find out what the story is and, and then you keep finding stuff. And so it keeps getting bigger and then it's hard to justify cutting it out when you find good stuff. So. Yeah. You, you almost have to force yourself to stop digging at a certain point if you want to yeah. you know, keep the project manageable. Well, uh, before I let you go, being a, a Mahoning fan, what's your dream double feature? If you could program a weekend at the Mahoning, where does your head go as far as your ah. dream double bill? I know it's a hard one. That is a really hard one. And I, I must profess that I am a... Big softy for Indiana Jones. Yes. So got us. I feel like there's there's no question that we've got to have an Indiana Jones in there. And whether that's Raiders or Last Crusade, you know, I'm, I won't be picky. Uh, maybe maybe that's the double feature. Maybe it's just those. And I, yeah. you know, not, not that I don't have love for Temple of Doom. But. We've done the trilogy and we only observe the trilogy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was like, why aren't you playing the fourth one? And we kept saying, what fourth one? Yeah, what are you, I don't know what you're talking about? Like it doesn't hurt. You're talking crazy. And we played it in July, and it was approximately as hot as Egypt. So it was like yeah. 4D. It that was so hot, and those movies are not short. And we played them three in a row, and it was, yeah. It was torture the one night, for sure. I was like, I think we're going to kill everybody. <laughs> But why don't you let the, the, the audience know where they can find your work, where they can follow you, um, anything you want to plug? Sure. So the Haggerty Drivers Foundation, you can find on their, their own website. All these documentaries are on their YouTube channel, Haggerty Drivers Foundation. And so I, I would say that's where you're going to go find that stuff. And then for me personally, you know, I, I have my own website, which is quigleyfilms.com. So you can see the other stuff I've been up to there. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not good at plugs. I'm terrible at self-promotion. <laughs> well, no. Hey, we, we want to make sure people uh, know where to find your work. Where are you located? I don't know if you said it. Uh, I'm a Philadelphia man. 
I love it. I love it. So it's, yeah, total no-brainer that you're a Mahoning fan. Well, hopefully our worlds cross once again, because, you know, I say it a lot on, on the podcast and just in general, these, these destined meetings, sometimes they'll, they'll just lead to other things. So it's, it's really great uh, when such a creative person crosses our paths and becomes part of the family. So uh, we love having you. Thank you so much for welcoming me into the family. And uh, I have a feeling that this isn't the last you're going to see of me. We love that. All right, guys. Anything else, Mark? Uh, James? No, I just uh, it was a great documentary. I, I loved it. My brother, who has a small cameo, he's observing the Tri-City Time Machine with his mouth agape. Perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, he loved it, too. He thought it was amazing. So gr- really good job on that. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Mark, anything for you? Thanks for coming on. It's been a long time coming, and it's a blast. It was it was a blast talking before we even started recording this. So, hopefully, there will be reason to have you on again to talk uh, cars and documentaries and movies and things. Yes, absolutely. You know, we'll we'll be in touch, and I will certainly be back at the Mahoning just to catch a couple of movies this year, anyway. Yeah. Well, you heard him. Like he said, keep pushing for your thing, whatever it is. Keep pushing for it. That's what we love. That. The Mahoning story is an inspiration and to see somebody, a local boy, going out there and doing his thing, it's 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 really great. All right, guys. So we'll see you at the Mahoning very, very soon. But on that note, Jeff, take it away, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field. And most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night and God bless you.